If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or add a blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 12-12. This is our number one for the World According to Zig podcast for this August 20th. 2017. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. This week in hour number two, our special guest will be conservative anti-Trump columnist for the Washington Post, Jennifer Rubin. Looking forward to speaking to her about a number of topics, including, of course, yet another very crazy week in the news. You know, folks, summertime is supposed to be the slow news period. <laughs> Can you imagine what the fall is going to be like? <laughs> because this has been, from the Trump perspective, the uh, the most uh, entertaining and, and also infuriating news cycle of a summer that I can certainly recall. I mean, on a daily basis, certainly on a weekly basis. Things have been utterly crazy, and this week uh, was no different. In fact, some might argue this was the nuttiest of all the weeks. Now, um, normally I, I, I go in kind of in a very informal rundown in hour number one where I review the news of the week uh, based upon what topics interest me most or try to put them in some sort of cohesive order. I, I'm going to mostly just go in chronological order this week. Because it was just that nutty, and I think that's probably the best way to do this. You know, last Sunday in the podcast, I talked a lot about the Charlottesville situation and the reaction to it, and how I thought that President Trump's original statement, while inartful and you know typically imperfect because it's Donald Trump, on the substance wasn't really all that bad, certainly not in keeping with the negative reaction to it, because I thought, well, here's a rare situation where Mr. Jump to Conclusions was actually waiting for the facts and was trying to be fair to use his term all sides. Now, I'm, I realize, and this became a big topic this week, that, oh, how dare Donald Trump say he's waiting for the facts because he's never waited for the facts on anything else. Well, that's actually true. He's not usually a wait-for-the-facts kind of guy. 
I, I'm well aware of that. I mean, the birther situation was a classic example, but there have been many others as well. He's, he's not really known for that. However, my retort to that would be, well, if an HIV-positive uh, intravenous drug user finally used a condom while having sex, would we criticize him for that? That's actually a pretty good analogy if you think about it, <laughs> as gross as it might be. But, I mean, that's really that's really what we're talking about here. A guy who is usually very reckless with the facts, very reckless with the truth. But in this particular case, he wanted to be extra careful, and he used the truth condom by saying, hey, look, uh, we're not sure. And it's also, by the way, it's important to point out, and you know, I think Trump is still getting a raw deal on this, that the chronology of events especially on a weekend, it's very easy for people to get mix them up in their minds, especially when they want to come to a conclusion. For instance, they want to hate whatever Trump's doing. Trump's first both sides or many sides statement occurred before we knew hardly anything. Before we knew about the person dying in the car crash, before we knew her profile, that she was obviously anti uh I don't know what you would call it, Confederate protest or whatever. I mean, the left will call it yeah, the Nazi protest. And we also didn't know who the driver was, that the driver was, in fact, a neo-Nazi and was part of the original pro-Confederate, don't tear down Robert E. Lee statue or whatever. You know, at this point, who the, who the heck knows what that original rally was supposed to be? But on paper, that's what the intention was. And so we didn't know any of that when Trump makes the original statement. So I found myself in this very odd position of, uh, in fact, kind of defending Donald Trump because I'm a fact guy. And, you know, I'll defend just about anybody if I think they're getting unfairly treated, especially by the news media. And in this particular case, I thought in large part Trump was. And on Monday, I wrote a column which you can check out at freespeechbroadcasting.com, basically articulating in greater detail my argument that I made on this podcast last week. So I hope you'll check that out. And then, of course, Trump basically tried to fix his original statement. He did a hostage video on Monday. On Monday, there was a hostage video where he read from a prompter and said, Hey, look, uh, you know, Nazis are bad and white supremacy is bad. And, you know, it was clearly not written by him. This was clearly done under duress. And the media didn't buy it. Now, I understand why the media didn't buy it, because it, it was clearly not really Trump. Now, would they have bought it with a different president? Absolutely. I mean, heck, if Barack Obama had done something that was perceived as sticking his foot in his mouth on a Saturday and then read a hostage uh, you know, script on a Monday on a, via teleprompter, the media would have sang him hosannas. Oh, ho, ho, he understands it. He gets it. He's such a big man acknowledging his original statement was wrong. That's what the narrative would have been about Obama. But Trump doesn't get that opportunity. Trump only gets one shot at it at best. And even then, uh, the media is going to give him absolutely no benefit of the doubt for good reason, because he's not trustworthy. So when you're a pathological liar, and I'll say this all the time, this is the price you pay. I'm sorry, 
when you're a pathological liar, there is some price that you got to pay for that. And part of that price is you don't get a second bite of the apple. You don't get any benefit of the doubt. You don't get to read a hostage script on video and have people take it seriously. But there was a lot of what I call virtue signaling going on. And that was really the essence of the column that I wrote on on Monday is, you know, all these people showing how good they are. I can't stand this. I really cannot stand this. When people take a position to a public event or a news story based upon what's going to make me look like the good person that I am. And, and what really drives me crazy is when conservatives do this. Because conservatives are forced to do this more than other groups, because especially when the issue is race, because we're already presumed to be racist. And those with high-profile jobs... You know, and are taken who are taken seriously by the mainstream news media and get invited to all the fancy parties, they want to remain in the club. So they go overboard going, oh, I'm so not racist. Look how so not racist I am. I'm going to condemn something that really didn't deserve to be all that condemned, even when it's on my own side, supposedly. Although I don't know what the hell the sides are anymore. Uh, but, it, you know, even when it's my own Republican president. So... To me, this virtue signaling is not just annoying, and as I wrote, wrote in the column, it's also a danger to free speech because a lot of what we saw this week in reaction to Charlottesville was basically throwing free speech into the dumpster. And if there was one thing that, that I think is most important in this realm to take out of Charlottesville, and I actually think, to Trump's credit, this was part of what led him down the path to getting himself in trouble. Because Trump, and I think this is a logical view, especially post-Obama eight-year presidency, we just had a black man as our president for eight years, Trump is treating everybody or trying to treat everybody equally, regardless of what your beliefs are. See, we cannot determine good and bad evil and virtuous based solely on what someone's perceived beliefs are. It should be based on actions. And Trump, I believe, I think, my interpretation is, to give him the benefit of the doubt, is he was looking in that situation in Charlottesville and basing his evaluation on what we knew about each side's actions. To the left, that doesn't work. Because to the left... They go, oh, white males carrying Confederate flags, and a few of them are carrying Nazi flags. These people are inherently evil. Inherently. Now, that, that can't work, folks. Now, is it possible that many of them are? Sure, absolutely. But when evaluating what's happening, especially in the eyes of the law, we cannot be presuming... Evil based upon beliefs. You know why? First of all, it's not an accurate representation. But And two, I don't think you necessarily control your beliefs. But most importantly, who gets to decide what beliefs are evil? That's the big problem, folks. Because someday someone might decide your beliefs are evil or bad. 
That's the part that's scary about this. And, of course, no one wants to make that point because, it's one, it's nuanced, and, two, because it looks like you're defending Nazis. Well, no one wants to defend Nazis. Well, the only reason why we have any semblance of free speech left in this country is because some of us have been willing to defend everybody's speech because we know how humanity works. And once you start banning one group based upon what they say or their what they believe, then there's no slippery or slope. There's no coming back from that. It's over. And I'm, frankly, after this week, I mean, even the New York Times had a headline this week that the ACLU, this was an op-ed piece, the ACLU, the American Civil Liberties Union, needs to rethink free speech. This is in the New York freaking Times. Are you serious? The New York Times. The newspaper of record, supposedly, in this country. Taking a position that, you know what, this free speech thing is overrated and uh, the ACLU even needs to take a chill. Back off of this thing. Certain people don't deserve free speech. Well, you know what, at this point, um, and I wrote a book called The Death of Free Speech back in 2005, and I've said many times, the biggest mistake in my book, which no one really read, but I digress, but the biggest mistake in my book is that I underestimated how quickly and dramatically we were going to lose our free speech rights. I did not anticipate it happening to this extent 12 years later. But we are on the exact path I predicted in the death of free speech, only at a far more accelerated pace. And that's one of the, to me, the most underrated and scariest elements of what transpired this week out of Charlottesville. Obviously, an innocent woman losing her life was terrible, but I'm talking about in the larger long-term picture of the country. So back to Trump. The media didn't like his hostage video, and so Trump held a press conference on Tuesday, and boy, uh, he basically um, went off the rails and fully proved that the previous day was, in fact, a hostage video because he went bonkers. He went unplugged. He went full Fox News Channel pundit. Boy, that escalated quickly. Yeah, it it went... (laughs) From 1 to uh, 11, real fast. He, on, on, Mon- on Monday, he was at a 1, and on Tuesday... These go to 11. Yeah, he went to an 11. And once again, I found myself in the very odd position <laughs> of liking Donald Trump more as the rest of the news media was apoplectic in their reaction to Donald Trump. Basically doubling down on his original comments, saying that those left-wing protesters caused a lot of violence too, that there were fine people on both sides, and we couldn't, we shouldn't come to any necessarily uh, dramatic conclusions about either side. If you look specifically at the things that he said, although I, I, he may have been wrong about the left-wingers not having a permit. I've read conflicting reports about that. But by and large, and I I referenced him acting as a Fox News pundit, had Donald Trump not been president of the United States, 
had just been a fake billionaire businessman, as he was a couple years ago. And had he made an appearance on Fox News reacting to the Charlottesville situation, I would have been cheering him. I would have thought, wow, that is, he's got the balls to say nobody else, what nobody else wants to say. And he, he made a very, I thought, important point and valid point, which the left walked right into, about these Confederate monuments and where do we draw the line? And if slave owning makes you disqualified, then what about Washington and Jefferson? Aren't they going down too? Which politically was a home run. I, I, in fact, I even overheard some guy on a golf course raving about how awesome that was when Trump made that, that statement. And this was not a hoity-toity golf situation. This was a blue-collar guy. Right in, the, right in Trump's wheelhouse. I knew then, okay, he ain't getting hurt by any of this. And I wrote another column about how the media overreaction to the Trump situation in Charlottesville was actually going to not hurt him and probably actually help him with portions of his base. Again, you can see that at freespeechbroadcasting.com. But... I, I think the best way to look at what Trump did on Tuesday and the media overreaction to it was articulated in a Fox News channel, ironically enough, a Fox News channel debate between Laura Ingram and Charles Krauthammer. Now, Krauthammer, I have enormous respect for. He's an intellectual. By and large, he's been anti-Trump, although, frankly, I've been disappointed by the times in which he has defended Trump when I didn't think Trump deserved it. And I think it's partially because of the pressure that everybody on Fox News Channel feels to toe the line. But in general, I really like Charles Krauthammer. In general, I loathe Laura Ingram. Uh, Laura Ingram is one of the biggest Trump sellouts, and she's not nearly as smart as she likes to pretend to be. But I actually thought that well, this again, I'm the, you know, I'm usually contrarian, but this week I was really contrarian. Most people seem to think Krauthammer got the better of, of that exchange, and I, I thought it was Ingram. And Ingram's basic point was, look, Trump's mistake here was not in what he said. It was that he turned into a pundit instead of a president. And I agree with that. See, again, I just said if, if Trump had done this as a commentator, I would have been cheering. However, as president, it was idiotic. In, in fact, it was... It was just flat-out ridiculous. You don't do that as president. You don't do that as president. Sometimes as president, you have to be politically correct. The ends did not justify the means here. So you are in a completely different situation as president of the United States than you are as a pundit. And Ingram was right that Trump made a mistake there. Now, why did he make the mistake? With Trump, it's almost always ego. And I believe that that's what happened here. I think Trump's ego was out of joint. I think he was pissed off. I think he hated the fact that he did the hostage video on Monday, and he just wanted to let the media have it. And I also think, you know, and, and this is where I give Trump a little bit of political credit. I mean, he's not, a, he's not a political imbecile, obviously. He pulled off this miracle. He knows his base. And he knew that this was not going to hurt him with the base. In fact, it was probably going to help him. 
And all Trump really cares about at this point is his base. He knows, or at least he should, that he cannot expand into any sort of governing majority. That's gone. That's done. If that was ever going to happen, it's never going to happen now. Because about 55% of the country has a strong disapproval of Donald Trump. So you can never get to 50% plus, barring a black swan event. Some sort of justified military situation. Oh, by the way, anybody remember when we were supposed to be going to nuclear war with North Korea? Remember those days? Yeah, that was like uh, a week and a half ago. That's all gone. That never happened. Our bluff got called and we just forgot about it. Trump Trump is a master at, at taking advantage of our short attention spans. Because he can take all the dumps he wants and it doesn't matter because the wind will blow it away and no one will smell it in a few days. By the way, he was also, remember he was supposed to fire Jeff Sessions? That never happened. He wimped out there. And oh, by the way, speaking of the military, what about the transgender ban? Whatever happened to that? To my knowledge, that has never even been implemented. If it has been, it's the quietest implementation of a ban of a group of people from our military, certainly I've ever been aware of. I don't think it's ever actually happened, which I told you it might not, that Trump basically just did that as a publicity stunt. And we now know that the day he announced that is the same day that Paul Manafort had the FBI raid his house early in the morning. So Trump knew he wanted a a, uh, distraction. But I digress. So Trump was right mostly, I think, in his analysis as a pundit, but he was wrong to do it as a president of the United States. And the media went bananas. I mean, they they went crazy. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, they've done this before. And this is one of the things I wrote about in my column about how the news media thinks they have Trump cornered, but they do not. It's the definition of insanity. If you keep doing the same thing over and over and over again, but thinking you're going to get a different result, that's insane. That's the news media with regard to Donald Trump. They think they have him. His approval ratings are low. He stepped in it here. This was outrageous. He's lost his moral authority to be president. No one on the Republican side wanted to defend him. Three advisory councils got disbanded because he's so toxic. No one wants to be connected to him, which is amazing. Just as amazing, Mar-a-Lago in Florida has lost like five major charities dumping out of using Mar-a-Lago for their fundraising events this winter in Florida because he's that toxic. But what the media doesn't understand is, now let's be clear, in a normal presidency, all these things would be devastating. In a normal presidency. Let's pretend that, uh, not that this would ever happen with George W. Bush, but since he's the most recent Republican president, that George W. Bush had screwed up this badly, stepped in it this many times, accomplished so incredibly little, had approval ratings in the mid-30s, maybe a little bit higher depending on the poll, and became that toxic where you couldn't even have an advisory council and, I don't know, people weren't even going to Texas Ranger games 
let's say he still owned the Texas Rangers because even being remotely associated him with him was toxic. If all that was happening, Bush would be in huge trouble. Why? Because nowhere within Bush's base of support would there be a cult of Bush supporters strong enough and large enough to where if they bolted from the Republican Party, Republicans would never win another election. That's what Trump has that no other Republican president in my lifetime has ever had. And he knows this. That's his power. It's not that his approval rating is 35, 36, 37, 38%, whatever the hell it is. By the way, next week it might be higher, I think, because of the backlash to the backlash of the liberal insanity. But it's it's that whatever that number is, I don't know what the number is, but I would say about 20% of the country is completely invested in Donald Trump's presidency. They will abandon him for nothing. There was a poll out that six in 10 Trump supporters would never abandon him just out this week. I can't imagine that George Bush would have ever had anything close to that because it was just a different animal. And so that's what's driving this. Trump, and I've written about this before, about how the Trump cult was created to be able to withstand this type of media blowback. In fact, it feeds off of this media blowback because his cult loves the fact that the media hates him and they keep counting him out. And the left has made so many mistakes this week that are reminiscent of what they did during the campaign. The, the biggest one is focusing on the Confederate monument issue. This is exactly what Trump wants. This And, and it's not even close. The Confederate monument issue polls actually pretty darn well. Obviously more in the South than it does in other areas. And look, I'm not pretending that Trump's in any great shape. I mean, if the Democrats come up with any kind of a decent opponent and, and Trump is the Republican nominee and he's still president in 2020, the Democrats going to win. I mean, his approval rating in the three states that won him the election, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, are terrible. They're all in the low, mid-30s. But he's, that's not what Trump cares about right now. Trump lives for today. He doesn't care about tomorrow. And today, he is safe from any major Republican blowback because of the cult. The cult sustains him. It sustains him politically, and it sustains him psychologically. When he tweets something stupid, even a big lie about General Pershing and how he used pig's blood to kill Muslims, it gets retweeted 20, 30, 40,000 times. It's better than Viagra for Trump. When he goes on to a rally, the crowd's cheering, it's packed. That's what he cares about. So he must sustain his cult. And his cult is just as strong, if not stronger, 
after this week than it was before. And this Confederate monument issue is so dumb by the Democrats. It's a classic case of, and the Democrats will always, always, always do this. I've said this for years. The one thing you can always count on with Democrats is they will overplay their hand. I'm not sure why that is. I think it's probably because they live in such a bubble and they know the media is on their side that they think, well, no one disagrees with us. So, therefore, the country must understand how right we are and we can go for the gusto on this. No. I mean, look, I, I'm somewhat ambivalent on the Confederate monument issue. I, I you know, if, if it's up to me, I don't see the harm in them. I think that there's historical value to them. I think, by the way, there's also a warning aspect to them. See, I think part of, there's so many different elements to this whole controversy, but one of those which is not understood nearly enough is that part of the reason why you have Confederate monuments is to remind people of what happens, first of all, when you have a civil war, and two, also, what happens, for instance, if one portion of the country starts disregarding the other. You know, there are many people who still to this day believe that the Confederacy was based in a belief in states' rights. Now, slavery was part of that, but the monuments are there as a reminder, hey, you can't push us too far or there will be pushback, which might even lead to a horrendous, bloody Civil War. And so, therefore, I think the monuments have some value there. But I guess, to me, the the biggest part of this problem, and Trump put his finger on this, is how do you decide which ones to take down? Now, the Confederate flag became toxic in South Carolina because that nut job went into the black church and killed killed, I don't know how many people, but it was horrendous, horrible massacre. And everyone, especially white people in South Carolina, led by the governor, Nikki Haley, immediately banned in the Confederate flag and reneged on a deal. That's what the part that pissed me off. The flag had already been removed from where it was and put in a special place under the provision that it would never be moved. Well, they reneged on that deal because the politics were just too devastating and the virtue signaling was just too enticing. So the Confederate flag became a symbol of slavery and evil. Now, how, by the way, and this confuses me, how did the Nazi flag and the Confederate flag become synonymous? How did, when did that happen? Because as far as I can tell, Confederates and Nazis have basically nothing, nothing in common with regard to either actions or beliefs. Now, I'm sure you could argue they have something in common, but I, I can understand why people have negative views of both, but they're not the same thing. They're not even analogous to me. Obviously, Nazis, with regard to racial cleansing, they, they were killing Jews. Confederates, by the way, weren't even, forget about Jews, they were weren't even killing black people. They were enslaving them. That was obviously horrible in retrospect, but happened to be legal at the time. So I, I, don't, even, I don't even understand the analogy. But so 
back to the issue of the Confederate monuments, how do you determine who gets removed and who doesn't? And politically, Trump was brilliant in bringing up Washington and Jefferson as slave owners. And, and the left played right into it. Some I saw on CNN, even, you know, some liberal commentators even said, yeah, Washington and Jefferson deserve to be brought down too. Good job, guys. Good work. That's, that's real good politics. We're the party against George Washington and Thomas Jefferson. That's going to play real well in like, you know, maybe in California, maybe in New York, maybe in Massachusetts. Out Well, you know, Massachusetts, they probably still care enough about the founding fathers just by virtue of the fact that everywhere they walk, there's their statues. But, you know, in certain areas of the country, that might work. But by and large, no, not going to work. Uh, maybe not even in Philadelphia, the area where I grew up, where obviously was the home of the Continental Congress. So that was really stupid on the left's part and played right into Trump's hands. And to this point of where do you draw the line, you know, I, I want to read what to me is the maybe the most important and interesting historical quote by a major historical figure that gets completely ignored. And whenever I bring this up, and I did so on Twitter yesterday and on Facebook, and people really got angry at me. Really, man. I mean, people who are supposedly fans of mine, people I know, got really pissed. And all I did was take a portion of the following quote. I broke it into two pieces, tweeted it twice, and wanted to see. And I, and I said the name of the, you know, it was just a quote and the name of the person who said it. And people went bananas. And that's part of why I find this quote to be so interesting and so important. But it's not for the reasons that I guess most people presume. I'm not actually denigrating the person who said this. I think it's important that people understand, though, that this person who is revered did say this. And by the way, not in private, (laughs) not in a diary that got found after his death. He said this in a very, very, very public setting. Here's the quote I'm referring to by a revered American public figure. I am not, nor have ever been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not, nor have ever been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races from living together on terms of social and political equality and is in in as much as they cannot so live while they do remain together there must be a position of superior and inferior and i as much as any other man 
am in favor of having having the superior position assigned to the white race. Now, it's hard to imagine a more blatantly racist, more blatantly white supremacist statement than that. And if you don't know who said that, that was Abraham Lincoln. During the fourth Lincoln-Douglas debates, which at the time was about as high-profile a platform as Lincoln could have ever possibly imagined. So this was not something that he was afraid of saying or didn't want people to know that he believed. This is Abraham Lincoln, the man whose very name is synonymous with freeing the slaves, the Emancipation Proclamation, winning the Civil War. I doubt that there's, I mean, even Donald Trump will acknowledge that Abraham Lincoln is the only president more presidential than him. <laughs> That's all another story for another day. Point is, there are no figures more revered, even by the left, than Abraham Lincoln. So my point here is, what? One, wow, isn't it amazing what history will do to whitewash something that isn't convenient to the narrative? <laughs> Wait a minute. Well, whoa, no, no. We, we like this Lincoln as emancipator hero narrative. So we're, we're going to just ignore that he said this in a very, very public setting. And to be clear, there's no context issue here. <laughs> he, didn't, he didn't at the end of this say, just kidding. <laughs> like like Trump always uh, Trump's people always do whenever he says something totally wrong or thanks Russia for for imposing sanctions on us. Just kidding. There was no statement from from Lincoln's press secretary the next day. Mr. Lincoln was simply kidding when he said this. Now, this is as detailed and as clear-cut and as unequivocal as it gets. So, one of my points here is, hold on to what Trump was warning about. You get rid of Washington, Jefferson, because they're slave owners. Okay, how do you not get rid of Lincoln then? Which, of course, would be ridiculous. That would be absurd. So where do you draw that line? with regard to historical figures and their correctness on the issue of race or slavery. You just can't do it. Because you have to evaluate these figures in the historical period in which they lived. And so the left, as I've said several times already, but bears repeating, has made a giant mistake. The issue here for them politically should be Trump is soft on Nazis because he doesn't care about race. He's said things in the past. And frankly, I'm amazed as much negative publicity as Trump gets that this thing I'm about to tell you about gets so little publicity. It's almost kind of like Lincoln's statement that I just read to you. But in the distant past, back when Trump was just a fake I don't even know if he was a billionaire then because this was back in the 80s, but just a fake rich guy 
Trump made statements on television about genetics that make it really, really hard to not believe he's a white supremacist. Really hard. Just just Google or YouTube Trump and genetics. So if you want to get Trump on this issue, that's where you go, go after him. Not on the, the Confederate monument issue. Of course, I don't even think this is the entire issue where you go after Trump. And I wrote about that as well. Again, freespeechbroadcasting.com, where I predict that the fallout from this, while dramatic, was not going to hurt Trump politically, at least not in the short run. And I think I've been borne out on that already. The polling already is showing I was correct on that. The reality is that the left has overplayed their hand and that Trump's base understands this. And you can't go after Trump. This is the most important thing. And I, I know I, I was roundly criticized, and rightfully so, for predicting time and time again that Trump would not win the general election. I, I'll be straight up with you, and I, I referenced this in the column that I wrote about this for Mediate this week. During the general election, while I always publicly was very confident that Trump would lose— to like a 95, 90% certainty, even to the last couple days. Behind the scenes, I was very concerned that his opponents were not going after him correctly. And I had numerous conversations with my good friend, Democratic Congressman John Yarmouth from Louisville, Kentucky, where I was castigating the Clinton campaign because they were going about attacking Trump all wrong. They went after him mostly on the, on the, in the realm of political incorrectness. That's a dumb way to do this. And that's the media still doing this now. They're going after him as being too politically incorrect to be president. First of all, people hate political correctness in general. Number two, he's the politically incorrect candidate. So you can't take somebody out by saying, oh, he's too politically incorrect when he's already been elected with everybody knowing just how politically incorrect he was. Let me use another example. You know, in retrospect, the Access Hollywood tape, although I thought it would have more of an impact than it did, I I never thought he was going to get completely slaughtered over it. Why? Because it's not a surprise that Donald Trump would be talking about women in that way. He's a guy who's been married three times to three babes, who's talked about his sex life publicly, who's owned multiple TNA beauty pageants. Nobody is shocked to hear Donald Trump talk about grabbing pussy. Now, if Bush 41 had been caught, Talked about talking about grabbing pussy because when you're a star, women will let you do anything you want. He would have been destroyed immediately. He would have had to get out of the race instantaneously because that would have been shocking. That would have gone against his narrative and who he was. If anything, the bragging about grabbing pussy 
fit right into Trump's narrative. The guy who will say anything he wants. He's Mr. Politically Incorrect, the alpha male. He's going to stir things up. He doesn't give a crap. So you're never going to take Trump out if that's the media's goal. And by the way, it might not be the media's goal because, frankly, you got to remember, Trump's the greatest thing that ever happened to the media business. We've just gone through the, the most action-packed summer that they can possibly remember with regard to political news. Can you imagine if Trump ever actually resigned? The news media would be in tears. No, 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 not yet. No, at least get us through the fall. I mean, they would be despondent over having Pence be president. I mean, so I don't know whether or not the news media really wants Trump out or not. But if they really want Trump out, the way you get Trump, you know, what was it uh, Sean Connery and the Untouchables? You want to get Capone? He puts one of yours in the hospital. You put one of his in the morgue. Well, here's how you get Trump. You go after his strengths. You go after his cult. You go after his cult having been duped. You go after all the broken promises from the campaign. That's what you go after. You go after the fact that he's not rich, that he's actually laughing at you because he won't even release his tax returns. You go after him on issues that will separate him eventually. It's not going to happen. There's no magic bullet here. will separate him eventually from his cult. And by the way, you also have to go after his, his media enablers. And the media has done that to a certain degree. Certainly Fox News Channel has been ridiculed. Breitbart has been ridiculed. Drudge has been at least somewhat ridiculed. Not enough to get them to change their behavior. But it, to me, it's kind of like, you know, um, Leah Remini has been doing this uh, series on Scientology. She's the actress who used to be a Scientologist. And, you know, she's done a great job exposing what a fraud Scientology is. And I'm sure it's hurt Scientology on the fringes, but it hasn't gone after the jugular. And the way you go after Scientology's jugular is by going after Tom Cruise, which by and large, she has not done. If you make Tom Cruise toxic, which should be easily done based upon the nature of Scientology, but somehow no one has been able to do, then you can get Scientology. Similarly with Trump, you go after Sean Hannity. Sean Hannity is the Tom Cruise of Scientology. <laughs> or Sean Hannity is to Trump what Tom Cruise is to Scientology. All right, you go after Sean Hannity. You go after Rush Limbaugh. You go after Matt Drudge. You go after Fox News Channel as a whole. That's the source of the power. Because the only way you ever get rid of Trump is if the cult dramatically dissipates, and the only way the cult ever dramatically dissipates is if the news media, the conservative, now state-run, news media industrial complex abandons Trump, which they're never going to want to do unless they have an incentive to do so because they're completely invested in at least pretending that Trump wasn't this giant mistake. No one's ever going to admit 
See, that's the and that's gonna that's where I'm gonna go with Steve Bannon's firing, because this is important into this whole narrative. Nobody is going to admit that they made a mistake with Trump. They're going to need a scapegoat. Trump's going to need a scapegoat. His fans are going to need a scapegoat. His media is going to need a scapegoat because he will be a disaster. Predicted this for over a year. More than that. But now it's clear. He's not going to be a successful president barring at least one, if not multiple, black swan events. And he will most likely be a disastrous president. And there's a reasonable chance he will not finish his four years in office, whether it be because of resignation or because he's impeached by Democrats who take over in the 2018 election. So that's that's the reality. That's the political reality with regard to Trump. Now, I mentioned Bannon's role in this. Steve Bannon got fired on Friday. I wrote a column about this from a perspective that no one else is going to write about because no one else has the knowledge or the balls to do so. The the title of the column is Andrew Breitbart, the founder of Breitbart, who died back in 2012 very suddenly, who was a friend of mine for about a four-year period, very close friend before we had a falling out. Andrew Breitbart would be furious with Steve Bannon right now. For many reasons. And I urge you to check that out at freespeechbroadcasting.com. But Bannon's firing, which to me has been overanalyzed and overestimated as far as its importance. Got to remember, from, from best we can tell, here's what Bannon's job in the White House was. Sit his fat ass on a couch and read his phone. That's what he was doing and chiming in from time to time, trying to get the last word in with Trump mostly unsuccessfully, and to no end. There's nothing, nothing that we can point to and say, Bannon did this. He got this accomplished. He got this done. Nothing. And Bannon, make no mistake, he got fired. Now, there are those who think he's going to go after Trump. No, he's not going to go after Trump. For a number of reasons. Number one, he still wants access to Trump and to power, or perception of power. Two, they apparently like each other. Three, he's invested in Trump's success or not being a failure or being at least perceived as having been sabotaged by something other than his own narcissism and egomania. Nobody, again, I must, I must emphasize this again, nobody, when this is all said and done, is going to go, you know what? We were, we were wrong. Oh, man, I got duped by Donald Trump. You never Trumpers. Man, you really nailed this one. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I doubted you, you never Trumpers. I'll, I'll never do that again. That moment is not going to happen, which is why this notion that somehow never Trumpers like myself are playing this for career political advantage is just it's just flat out ridiculous it's absurd there will be no day of reckoning there'll be no day of accountability and bannon's gonna make sure of that because what's bannon gonna do now that he's running breitbart again he's gonna create the scapegoat narrative and who's gonna be the scapegoat well it'll be the media a little bit 
There'll probably be some shots at Democrats. But by and large, it's going to be those globalist cuck Republicans who didn't have the balls to fight hard enough for our hero, the great Donald J. Trump. That's going to be the narrative, and people will buy that narrative. Why? Because they're invested in it. Because it's far, far easier to dupe people than to convince them that they have been duped. My life has been a testament to this unfortunate reality. And that's what's going to happen here. And by the way, who pays the price for that? Not Democrats. Not the left. Republicans. Because how the hell are Republicans going to win a 2018 midterm election with a president with crappy approval ratings, especially among the mainstream, with not just low approval, but record high intense disapproval. The big advantage that Republicans have always had in recent years in midterms is that our side votes. The left's too damn lazy. Well, guess who's going to fix that problem? Donald Trump, the left can't wait for the 2018 election. Meanwhile, our side's in the middle of a civil war. And Bannon's going to exacerbate that civil war by using Breitbart and other media organs, I'm sure. He's talking about trying to create a competitor to Fox News Channel, but I don't believe that's ever going to happen for a number of reasons. But I digress. The point here is, He's, he, he's said he's going to go to war. He's got his hands back on his weapons. This is a really weird, odd, and frankly insulting thing to say about the considering the founder of Breitbart, Andrew Breitbart, is the one who built it. Those aren't his weapons. He didn't build it. He said he built a fucking machine at Breitbart. No, he didn't. He didn't do shit. It was Andrew Breitbart that built Breitbart. He just took over, and when there was a power vacuum after Andrew suddenly died, one night in 2012. So Bannon is going to create this narrative, forward this narrative, that it's the Republicans' fault. Well, how's that going to help with Republican turnout against a super hyper-energized left? And you also have to remember, historically, that presidents always lose seats, almost always, in a midterm election. So the only thing Republicans are going to have even remotely going for them is that in the Senate, the playing field is very much to their advantage. But even that might not be enough to save them. So I'm, I'm furious with what it looks like Bannon's going to do. And I'm really pissed off as to what he's doing, whether he intends it or not, with regard to Andrew Breitbart's legacy. Now, I've discussed before, and I've never gotten into the full story, and I don't think I'm going to do so now simply because I don't have the time, and I'm sure there'll be other opportunities in the future. But for those that don't know, Andrew and I, and I get into this in the column I wrote today, were really good friends for about three or four years, 2006 to about 2010. And I was shocked when our relationship blew up, mainly because I suddenly realized, oh, my gosh, the guy who I thought was a really close friend and a, and a guy who I, I was in foxholes with and fought together with under some extraordinary circumstances didn't really view me as a friend. He viewed me as, bizarrely, some sort of 
branding threat as a fellow anti-media conservative in Los Angeles who was at the time getting a lot of publicity for my media malpractice movie and the interview I did with Sarah Palin. And Andrew really exposed himself to me as, as being uh, duplicitous and hypocritical and deceitful in a lot of ways. I still respect the hell out of a lot of things that he did. But for Bannon to, to essentially forget that Andrew ever existed with his, his psycho statements on Friday was really infuriating. And nobody within the Andrew Breitbart circle is going to even say anything about this. Why? Well, because they're all pro-Trump people. They're all pro-Bannon people. They all want to stay in his good graces. I'm the only guy who knew Andrew well enough, cares about this issue enough, and doesn't give a damn about pissing anybody off to actually tell the truth. And that is that Bannon is a freaking fraud. He's done nothing. He took over Breitbart after Andrew built it. His one major hire was Milo Ionopoulos, who got fired in disgrace earlier this year. Well, he, he gets he he helps get Trump elected, although frankly, I'm I'm becoming more and more convinced that Bannon had very little to do with this. And it was mostly luck and maybe some help from the Russians in keeping down Hillary's vote in Wisconsin and Michigan. But regardless, okay, he was in charge, so he gets at least some credit. He pulls off this miracle. But then we get nothing out of it. He's only in the job as senior advisor for less than eight months, and he gets nothing done. And I make the argument in this column that Andrew would not just be furious over the, the credit issue, but also what Bannon has done to Breitbart as a name. Because Andrew's name is now forever going to be connected with selling out to Donald Trump, a guy who Andrew Breitbart never would have supported remotely, would have fought against during a Republican primary. For sure. 100%. I mean, we have quotes from him about Donald Trump while he was alive. He knew what a fraud Trump is, and he knew the dangers of a celebrity candidate. And now here Breitbart is forever, almost literally, as it's been nicknamed Trump Bart, is going to be associated, unfortunately, with a liberal con man who Andrew knew to be such. So check out that column at freespeechbroadcasting.com. You know, this week, and I've, I've mentioned already this issue of, okay, what's going to end up happening with Trump? Will he resign? Will he be impeached? Will he try to run for re-election? I, I don't know. I mean, it's impossible to know at this point. If I had to guess, if I had to guess... I think he he probably serves out his term but doesn't run for re-election. That way he can he doesn't have to say, you know, or doesn't have to face any accusations of having quit. He gave it his good try. He tried to drain the swamp, but the Republicans just wouldn't let him. He's getting older. It's time to let somebody, you know, make Mike Pence take over, whatever. I can see that narrative if he's... Now, the only... The biggest question mark to that, of course, is what does Mueller do? And also, is it even psychologically possible to stay at this pace for another three-plus years? Because, I mean, we're burning energy. All of us are burning energy at a record pace. 
And Trump is too. And eventually that will come back to haunt you. But this week, the guy who wrote the book, The Art of the Deal, Donald Trump's alleged biography, which he didn't really write, he predicted that Trump would resign by the end of the year. I don't believe that because I don't know how you spin that as anything other than a disaster. I, I just don't see how Trump would, his ego would let him do that unless he was forced at gunpoint somehow. But it reminded me of a meeting that I had an, uh, by accident that I've never mentioned on this podcast with a golfer by the name of Mac O'Grady. And people are probably wondering, why, John, why do I care what Mac O'Grady, who I've never even heard of, says about Donald Trump? Well, in the golfing world, Mac O'Grady is known as like this bizarre genius. He was a PGA Tour pro for quite a while, but he's become more well-known as kind of a guru, as a teacher for some very top players. In fact, he was Seve Ballesteros, one of the greatest players of all time, his last coach. And he's a very strange dude. And a few months ago, I was playing a practice round for a qualifier for a tournament, and Mac O'Grady was playing in the tournament, and he was waiting on the first tee. And I said, Mac, uh, you know, I'm John Ziegler. I know who you are. Uh, I'm wondering, would you like to join me for the practice round? He was very nice. He said, no, I, you know, when I play practice rounds, it takes me about six hours because I'm constantly mapping out the golf course. I mean, I'm paraphrasing what he said, but it didn't surprise me at all because I had expected that this guy was going to be strange. And so, all right, okay, I didn't take it personally. But I said, I got to ask you at least one question because I'm fascinated by Seve Ballesteros and I knew he had coached Seve. So we started talking about Seve. And this conversation must have gone on for like 45 minutes on the first day, which was only adding to the endlessly long practice round he had planned. But he was, he was into the conversation. But at a certain point, I think he, he learned that I was a political commentator and he mentions Donald Trump. And I did not know that he had taught Trump golf, not just for a little bit, but by his account, for 35 years. Now, you teach someone golf for 35 years, you know them really well. Really well. Because, I mean, you can tell more about somebody on the golf course in 15 minutes than you can sometimes knowing them for years. And you teach them golf, that's about as close an insight as you can get. So I said to him, okay, well, I got to ask you, Mac, what's going to happen? And got it. remember, this is a guy with no animus towards Trump. Trump has paid him a lot of money over a long, like, like I said, 35-year period of time. And Mac O'Grady says to me, oh, there's no chance he lasts more than a year. It's like he was saying it like matter of fact. He said, no, no, you don't understand. This guy is an infant. He has the mentality of an infant. There's no possible way he can deal with the presidency for a year. It's just not going to work. I said, well, is he as corrupt as, as a lot of people think? Oh, worse. One of the most corrupt people I've ever met. 
I'm like, well, but you like him? Oh, he's a nice enough guy. You know, I had a good working relationship with him for 35 years, but I would never let him be president. <laughs> and I, I'm, these are as close to direct quotes as I can remember from the conversation. But the, the biggest takeaway was to Mac O'Grady, the guy who had taught Trump for over three decades, it was obvious, clear cut. No chance. This was only a couple months ago. And this was before a lot of the crap that hits the, has hit the fan. No chance he makes it through the first year. And he was exceedingly confident in that. So take that for what it's worth. According to Mac O'Grady, his golf teacher for 35 years, and the guy who wrote his biography. Now, these are two people who really ought to know him very well. Neither one believes that Donald Trump will be president in 2018. I'm not sure I'm buying that. I, I, I think you need more time and more pressure uh, for, and, and an out. That's the main thing. Trump needs an out. Someone uh, suggested this week that if um, Jeff Bezos, the guy who owns Amazon, had just, just offered... Uh, Trump a billion dollars to resign that he would do it. I said, a billion dollars? He'd do it for half that. Especially if he threw in a statue. If you if you told Trump, if you told Trump, here's a half a million dollars and we will build you a statue like outside of a laboratory somewhere in, uh, in a restroom in, uh, you know, in the, in the Monument Square there in D.C. Like there's, I'm sure there's a Portageon area. If, if you put, if you put a statue of Donald Trump along with a half billion dollars, Trump would take that deal in a second and get the hell out of town. Uh, one other story before um, we end the first hour, I, I do want to mention, speaking of golf, I went to the uh, U.S. Amateur this week, uh, which is the premier amateur golf tournament in the world. Mostly turned, it's now basically turned into the, a redo of the NCAA championships because it's all kids now, thanks to the advent of all this technology and fitness and, and uh, video and everything else. The game has totally changed. But the reason I went is because it's at Riviera Country Club here in Los Angeles. The finals are today. And um, one of the guys I was curious about seeing is a guy I had never met before, didn't know him. But I was, I was intrigued because he went to my very small high school, Holy Ghost Prep, outside of Philadelphia. And back in the early 80s, I basically started the golf team at Holy Ghost. And we were terrible, but I was halfway decent and won the county player of the year my senior year, although I, shouldn't, I didn't deserve it. I think they gave it to me simply because they liked the, the narrative. The newspaper liked the narrative of the, the small Catholic school with this one kid who's trying to start this golf program and was halfway decent. Anyway... Holy Ghost as a school is now light years different than it was back when I went. And this guy by the name of Chris Crawford is way better than I ever was. I've never even qualified for a U.S. amateur, even though I've tried most of my life. I've played in a couple what are, what are called U.S. mid-amateurs for guys over 25 years old. But Chris, is, Chris was playing in his fourth or fifth U.S. amateur. He played in the last two U.S. Opens. So he's clearly the best player the school has ever had. And I wanted to see him play. I wanted to meet him if possible. So I go, and sure enough, I meet him. Super nice guy. I explain, hey, I'm from Holy Ghost. 
you know, he seemed excited to see me there. I figured I'd walk with him for a little while. Met his mom, who was tremendous, just great people, really good player. And uh, he had a caddy who was an old, super old guy from Riviera because his normal caddy had gotten sick at the last second. And I was trying really hard. It's a, it's a dicey situation in these circumstances because you never know, are, are the people being polite? They don't really know you that well. Uh, you know, or, or is there some loyalty that you're unaware of? But I really was trying to get the mom to let me caddy for, for Chris the next day. On Tuesday, it's a two-day qualifying before match play. Because I could tell this caddy didn't know what the hell. He was too old. I mean, he could barely walk. I mean, he was somewhere in his 70s, and Riviera is a fairly hilly golf course. And Bel Air, where they were playing the second round, is also hilly. So I'm like, you know, but she wasn't really taking the hint. And um, and so, and I remember looking at the caddy, and he took out what is called, a, you know, a um, distance measuring device. Now, for a lot of tournaments, distance measuring devices are illegal, but... He was taking it out so overtly, I'm thinking, oh, okay, clearly they must have allowed them for the U.S. Amateur, which kind of surprised me. But, you know, no one was saying anything about it. But it did occur to me that that what about the issue, because these measuring devices, they have something that measures the slope, meaning how high or low the ground is. And that's illegal. Now, I had no way of knowing and didn't ask whether or not this caddy was using the slope measurement. But I was just concerned. It just there was something in my subconscious that said, "Okay, that's troubling." But again, no one got the hint that uh, I, I thought it would be a good idea if I caddied for him the next day. So I didn't go the second day. And sure enough, I'm, I'm watching online, and Chris is playing great. He's never made the match play portion of the U.S. Amateur, which is a huge deal because if you get into the final two, you go to the Masters. I mean, it's a, it's a big stinking deal, and it's a huge career boost if you do this, especially for someone who might turn pro like Chris. So I'm watching online. He's a couple under par for the day. He's well under the cut line, and then all of a sudden I can't find his score anymore. I'm like, what? What the hell happened? What? What? And there's 312 players, so scrolling through all the scores, like there's no way he's all the way at the bottom. He was, he was only like one or two over par. Well, sure enough, I get all the way to the bottom, and he has DQ next to his name. I'm like, he got disqualified? How is that possible? Well, long story short, I find out through Chris. Right? I email Chris, and I email a, a rules guy at the tournament that I knew, and they said, sure enough, that his caddy – unbeknownst to Chris, when he had been using the distance measuring device, had the slope button turned on, which is a technical violation of the rules, couldn't provide less of an advantage. I mean, zero advantage, especially when Chris didn't even know it was on. Chris suddenly realizes in the middle of the round, because I think the caddy mentioned something about how many yards he had to the hole plus what the slope was, and Chris is like, what? You have the slope on? So Chris had nothing to do with it. It gained no advantage. And by the way, this gets a little deep in the weeds on golf, but every player in the field has a book that has the slope of the greens in the book. Now, that's legal for some reason. So it's perfectly fine to have a book that tells you the slope of the greens 
but because a switch is on your distance measuring device that you don't even know about, it's illegal. Now, I don't know what the percentage of players is that would have disqualified themselves for this, but it's low. Chris immediately disqualified himself. There is no chance, no chance anyone would have known anything about it had he just not mentioned it. If he had just said, hey, look, turn that off. There would have been morally no issue and logistically no issue. My wife, when I told her the story, her immediate reaction was, oh, that was stupid. He should not have said anything. I'm like, boy, that's that's troubling. <laughs> that, that tells me a lot about where we're headed down the road. But again, I digress. So Chris disqualifies himself, and I start thinking, well, wait a minute. This is a new story here. And this is where it kind of gets funny, and I, I find myself in these situations all the time where oftentimes I'm the guy behind the curtain that no one knows about. <laughs> so I have a relationship with ESPN's golf reporter, and I, I said, Bob, um, I think I got a story for you. I explained what happened. I, what do you think? He goes, oh, my God, that's an amazing story. You know, the whole story of a guy disqualifying himself, doing the right thing, blah, blah, blah. And so I set him up with an interview with Chris. ESPN does the story immediately. It gets picked up everywhere. Uh, Chris is probably more well-known than the guy who will certainly come in second in the tournament, if not first in the tournament. And for me, the funniest part of the whole thing, I, I hope it works out for Chris because he deserves it and he's a good guy uh, and he did the right thing, and that's very rare in this day and age. But for me, the funniest part was here I have a guy who for the last five years has been fighting ESPN on this whole Penn State story. I couldn't get ESPN to do a story on the truth about the Penn State scandal if I had 33 confessions on video from every single person who made an accusation in the Penn State case, they would laugh at me. And without even a phone call, I'm able to get a new story on ESPN about a golfer who disqualified himself. So that's my life in a nutshell right there. And uh, good luck to Chris Crawford. All right, next week uh, we are off on the podcast. So um, this podcast will have to hold you over till Labor Day weekend when we do plan to do another podcast, make sure you stay tuned for hour number two, our interview with Washington Post columnist Jennifer Rubin. And as always, I only ask two things of you. Number one, make sure you share this podcast via Twitter, Facebook, word of mouth, what have you. And number two, if you're one of those people who sleeps at night, when you sleep, you use sheets, do yourself a favor and pay attention to this important message. My name is John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed. Ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should, oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheiks. S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. 
sleepcoolnow.com, one, two, one, two.